Hi, I'm Tina Desiree Berg, and welcome to The 34. What was the statistic? I, I, I'll find it. No, I'm not even going to bother looking it up, but is it true that we represent 5% of the yes. world's population and 25% of its prisoners? Absolutely. Now, I find that, you just said China. I can't believe that. It's astonishing. It's astonishing. Absolutely. Well, most countries don't have the concept that we do. We punish people who are nonviolent for nonviolent crimes. We actually imprison them. We put them away. We take right, people who have drug issues, who have alcohol issues, uh, mental illness. We put them in prisons. The rest of the world gets some treatment. It would be like putting you in the lines in the Coliseum. Well, that's where no way. the system helped the defense Absolutely. and not the prosecution. Absolutely. That was just an incredibly stupid move. And when they brought it down, they thought, this is what I think uh, the general feeling was, they thought they were going to come downtown where there were a lot of African-American jurors and that those African-American jurors weren't going to like that black man with the white wife. And they were going to get especially women who were not going to like the fact that he had married a blonde white woman. And apparently nobody bothered to mention to them they may not like O.J. Simpson, but they liked the LAPD a whole lot less. And apparently nobody remembered the name Rodney King. Uh, <laughs> I would say that that probably came fairly quickly. Uh, my first job was in the public defender's office in Nashville, and the first day I went to work, I uh, walked into a courthouse. My supervisor took me to a courthouse, put me in a courtroom, handed me 25 warrants for 25 clients, and said, good luck. <laughs> um, and you got the very impression very early on, you knew that there wasn't much you could do. Um, you, you literally had 10 to 15 minutes for some of these clients, and if the poor get charged that they just weren't going to be represented very well and it was a very frightening thing. So I learned literally my first day that the system is not what it's portrayed as. Pat Harris is a world-class criminal defense attorney and civil rights litigator who is challenging Diane Feinstein from the left. Welcome Pat. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. So the first thing I wanted to ask you about, because I think this is a very important thing that you did, when you were going through the endorsement process against uh, in the Caldem primary, you had received some correspondence from them where they didn't want to accept uh, your viability because you had donated money to your own campaign, which is nowhere in the bylaws. Uh, tell, us, tell us a little bit about the background on that and then what you did in response. Well, they notified me originally that uh, I would not be allowed to speak at the convention and my name would not be on the endorsement ballot. Um, and yet I met the criteria of having raised enough money to to be viable. They then held a hearing with the, the chairman and several of the people and said, doesn't matter because some of that money you put in yourself. I responded <laughs> and said, well, that's, you know, there's nothing in the bylaws that prevents that. In fact, it's funny, the day they sent that, Diane Feinstein wrote herself a check for $5 million and put it into her account, and they sure put her on the ballot. So right. I, you know, they said, doesn't matter, we don't care, you're not going to be on the ballot. So I asked, is there an appeal process? They said, yes, we'll have a committee you can appeal to next Wednesday. So Tuesday, um, before the appeals process, I sent them mm -hmm. a nice uh, introductory lawsuit and explained that if I was going to be denied um, to be on the ballot that Thursday morning I would be on the front steps of the ca uh, Sacramento courthouse uh, and I would file a lawsuit against them. So, Which is awesome. <laughs> well, that's what, I, you know, that's what I've been doing my life. Is I, I talk about in this campaign I'm a fighter, and that's why I think we need in the Senate is a fighter. And I, yeah. I wanted to show them, look, I'm not just talking about this. I mm -hmm. am not going to roll over and just accept it. So they did uh, back down, and they uh, put me on the ballot, and I got to speak at the convention. Which was great. I'm glad you stood up to them. And you're right. It's nowhere in the bylaws, and it's so uh, it's obvious at this point that the reason they did that is because they wanted to thwart a progressive challenge to Diane. And it seems so tone deaf at this point because if, if the voters can't trust the system, everything's over. We have to be able to trust the system that's in place. And the DNC and CalDem now has shown that they're engaging in, in preferential politics for somebody that is in the establishment, and it's really deadly. So um, I'm glad to have this David Goliath moment, and I think what you did was really uh, a hero moment. 
Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And I, I couldn't agree with you more. We, we have a Democratic Party that essentially has decided um, they've made a choice. And their choice is, yeah. is that we are going – the Democratic Party is going to be the establishment party uh, a little bit to the left of the Republicans, but not much. And we're still going to go to Wall right. Street and get our money. They've made that decision. Uh, unfortunately, the Democratic Party voters don't agree with that decision. And no, so they do not. It's time to put a pitchfork in it, as I like to say. That's right. <laughs> so what are some of your major differences with Diane as far as policy and platform? Well, the first thing is that goes to every every policy is is I will not accept corporate donations, and she does. Uh, mm -hmm. I don't think there's any question that this system has been ruined by the fact that we allow corporations to essentially dictate to the congressmen and senators how they're going to vote. Right. Um, right. So I, I believe very strongly that in order to get anything we need passed, any of the policies, the progressive policies that I believe in, we got to first get corporate money out of politics. So I disagree mm -hmm. with her on the fact that she takes she takes money from big pharma, from uh, real estate, large real estate conglomerates, big ag. She takes money from a lot of huge corporations and then, surprise, surprise, votes pretty much along the lines of what they want her to. The right. second thing is, is she does not support Medicare for all. And in fact, at a town hall that I went to, she called it a government takeover, yeah. which is yeah. an absolute it, it's frightening that there's going to be um, a proposal by uh, Senator Sanders. Uh, how, how are you going to help support single payer? Because all the proposals and the reworks that have been coming up with health care right now basically are just helping the health insurance industry. People like the doctors and the uh, medical facilities, the nurses, etc., are not getting any breaks. But the healthcare industry is getting all the breaks. Yes. So my question again, how are you going to help support single-payer healthcare? Well, okay. If single-payer healthcare is going to mean complete takeover by the government of all healthcare, I'm not there. Not only is it frightening in the sense that we disagree on it, it's frightening that that's how she perceives it. Uh, yeah, I agree. That is a right-wing talking point. It actually, <laughs> strangely enough, yeah. Tina, it goes back to the 1960s when we Indeed. first introduced Medicare and Medi-Cal. That's what the Republicans said then. Oh, this is a yep. government takeover. Um, yeah. So that's scary. And then the it third, is scary. It is. It really is. Third major way I differ with her is she is a huge proponent of defense budget spending, and I'm a huge proponent mm. in cutting the defense budget. We are spending right. and wasting. I mean, the Defense Department is the largest welfare agency in this country, yeah. um, and it's ridiculous the amount of money that they they just waste and throw away, not to mention the amount of money that they're spending on weapon systems that don't even work and will never be used. In the meantime, we have research organizations, medical research organizations that need the funding to, to cure right. diseases like Alzheimer's and heart disease. And instead of funding them, we're funding weapons, like I said, that we're not even going to use. And then fourthly, we totally disagree about cannabis and the legalization of cannabis. Mm. I, think, um, I think cannabis is totally misunderstood. It's something that mm -hmm. most of the public still views as two uh, high school kids in the, their parents' basement smoking a joint. Right. Uh, that is not the cannabis industry. The cannabis industry is now a incredibly, uh, not only just medically, but economically profitable business. And it is something that pays taxes. It is something that has made a huge difference, positive difference in Colorado. And right. we need to legalize it nationally. We need to not only legalize it because it is a great medicine. And I, I can tell you, I believe, I've become a firm believer. At some point in the future, cannabis is going to be very similar to what we take as far as Advil or aspirin or those kind of things mm -hmm. because it is a great Oh, absolutely. No, exactly. I was going to say they have forms now where they remove the THC, which is the part that gets you high. I know That's that right. they were using it for um, epilepsy in children, and it's been very effective. That's absolutely right. And the yeah. idea that we are going to – it's the plant. And the idea that we're actually going to deny people the opportunity to have a, a medicine that really helps them makes a huge difference in their lives. 
I disagree with her when she says that it should not be used, yeah. uh, cannabis should not be legal. So those are some of the things I disagree with her on. And those are important issues. Uh, you know, speaking of cannabis, I am also um, incredibly worried about our prison system. Um, you would see this as a criminal defense attorney. The, the amount of folks we have locked up for offenses like smoking pot is astronomical. And, uh, you know, you had Kamala Harris's office when she was attorney general defending, which this really blows my mind, defending involuntary servitude in the sense that it would diminish an important labor pool, I think was the verbiage that she chose to use. And this was something that SCOTUS had even stepped in and said that we were engaging in cruel and unusual punishment because we were so overcrowded in our prisons. Uh, So as a criminal defense attorney, how, how do you perceive that situation? Well, you know, that was my first sort of um, the relationships that I had in terms of with clients involved in the cannabis industry or involved even just possession. That was my first taste mm-hmm. um, of sort of how it worked. And the criminal justice system and how it treated just some of the most ridiculous small things, possession of, of very small amounts, not to mention how it treated uh, a dealer who might have 10 baggies. You know, mm-hmm. We started talking about situations where states and definitely the federal government put mandatory minimums on the sentencing right where you would actually end up with somebody who was quote a dealer and this could be this could be a 19 year old kid like i said who has 10 baggies who's you know making 10 bucks a shot at school when he's running them out looking at anywhere as a minimum of 10 to 15 years in a federal prison Mm. um versus a an absolute you know you you see somebody like what happens on Wall Street and some of the crimes committed there where they walk away with probation after stealing <laughs> millions and, and right. when you look at the, the 2008 collapse even billions of dollars they walk away with a yeah. slap on the wrist if they even get that and then if you've they got even some, get that yeah yeah you got some 20 year old kid sitting in a federal prison for 12 years because he sold uh, some bags of weed it's it's just ridiculous it is ridiculous and you know and I also think that you know you bring up the minute min, minimum mandatory sentencing uh, which you know in a sense was also very racist people I think forget oh, yeah. that there used to be a higher sentencing for crack cocaine than there was for powder cocaine and clearly the crack cocaine was going into the poor minority neighborhoods whereas the wealthier folks were buying the cocaine and th- it made no sense you know it goes it's it's so fascinating I've learned so much while being a criminal defense attorney about the history of how they started actually going into arresting minorities for drug use, starting back in the 20s uh, during Prohibition when they decided they wanted to kind of attack minorities. And at that point, a lot of the, especially the poor neighborhoods, they were smoking pot. uh, And so that's when it became tremendous. You know, they started putting these sentences on to put people in jail. And then all the way up to what we learned in the late 1960s, when um, President Nixon was in office, and we learned from Eric uh, Haldeman, uh, E.H. Mm-hmm. Haldeman, um, in his, I can't remember if he had something, he was an interview, or, or some point recently, he actually put out there that they right. purposely, purposely went after drugs and marijuana in minority communities, because that was the way to get them off the streets. That was the way, <sighs> essentially, they wanted to make sure that these guys who they who weren't supporting Nixon, who were protesting him, uh, also even the white um, sort of hippie types, yeah. they wanted to get them off the streets. So they jacked up the the uh, punishment so that these guys would end up, you know, it was just taking entire generations and minorities and groups and getting them off the streets. That's all it was. Right. It was absolute racism in its purest form. Yeah, it's frightful. You know, and then in California, we also had this uh, three strikes and you're out law for a great many years. And I would have to wonder if the percentage of folks in lifetime sentences are there simply for minor drug offenses, which is, this is insane. It is insane. Uh, and, so, and they were actually, they're, they're, that is changed somewhat. I will say that the system has changed somewhat. And most district attorneys now are recognizing that a third strike needs to be something, a serious or violent crime. But there are still people who are sitting in jail cells for life now for very minor offenses, including possession or selling a small amount of drugs. 
Trifle. So you uh, you sued the Glendale Police Department for wrongfully arresting and holding a man accused of murder. And it blows my mind when the DNA evidence actually in, exonerated this guy, they didn't release him immediately. Why is this the case? The Glendale Police Department had uh, this. This was in a residential neighborhood where this murder occurred. This young man was killed, and he was killed in front of his mother. Um, and mm-hmm. the mother escaped. And so what happened was is she was able to identify eventually um, – she, she kept telling the police when they showed him a picture of my clients. She says, it looks like him, but that's not him. That's not the person who killed him. And she kept telling that, and regardless of that, they went ahead and arrested him because it was a oh front-page story, and they felt like they had to have an arrest. And so once they put themselves out there in the front page of the Glendale paper and the Pasadena paper and all the Burbank papers, all the local papers, mm-hmm. they had, you know, mm-hmm. this, this big story about we caught the guy and, you know, the murder and, and it, they had kind of committed themselves to this so that when the DA, DNA came back and it wasn't him, which we kept, we had been telling them for months, then their story became, well, he must have been with the guy who killed him. <laughs> so they went found the guy whose DNA had matched, who just happened to be in jail by that time on another charge. They went to him and mentioned my client's name, and the guy looked at him and goes, I don't even know who you're talking about. I've never even met this human being. So at that wow. point, they still didn't release him. They took the, the uh, mother in to do a lineup. She saw the actual killer. He was in the lineup. She literally started vomiting at that point when she saw him. Oh, my God. And she said, this is, this is him. This is the person. At that point, they still did not let my client out. Oh, my God. It took us another two to three weeks of going in, and we literally had to raise hell almost every single day, and finally they released him. And at that point, we decided, look, you know, this has been ridiculous. We sued mm-hmm. them. We sued the Glendale Police Department, the city of Glendale. We asked for a settlement of around Um, Mm $250,000. My client had been in jail and murders row for nine months, and we asked them for a quarter of a million dollars. They came back and said straight to us, we're not going to pay you a penny, and we're going to go to court and teach you a lesson. Uh, That was their response. So we went to court, and the jury came back with a verdict of $2.1 million. So I don't think they taught us much. (laughs) Karma. Yeah. That was a crazy case. Yeah, this is what bothers me about these situations. They don't seem to be committed to any idea of truth or what justness is. This this becomes a game to them, and it's frightful because I don't, I don't think why I don't understand why they don't see that this isn't a a high moral virtue. It's not about winning; it's about serving justice at the end of the day. And then they wonder why folks don't trust the police departments or they don't trust the justice system. Well, this is a prime example of why. It makes no sense. Well, you hit the nail on the head. It's about winning. Uh, it quit it's, being about doing justice, and now it's about if you get if you make an arrest, or if you're a district attorney and you get a conviction, you get promoted. You get higher salaries, right. you get higher positions, you keep moving up. So it's about winning, and you know it's it's easy for them to basically say, okay, uh, I think this person may have done it, so you know I'll go ahead and convict them and. You know, their career gets advanced and they move on. Um, but what we saw the other day, and I've I, I, I got to bring this up, Tina, because mm-hmm. it's been yeah. eating at me terribly. Um, last week, we saw the district attorney, Jackie Lacey, in Los Angeles. We saw her basically decline to prosecute a police officer who shot and killed uh-huh. a young black man in Venice. The, Are you kidding me? Oh, no. This was, he was shot two years ago. They've had two years to investigate this. Let me tell you what makes this case unusual. Wow. I mean, they, unfortunately, Jackie Lacey has not prosecuted a single police officer since she's been in um, for murder for, the, for actually killing somebody since she's been in office. His first black district attorney walking out of a town hall meeting tonight on race relations. Yes, after she was verbally attacked by Black Lives Matter supporters, CBS 2's Andrea Fujii is live in downtown L.A. where she just spoke with D.A. Jackie Lacey. Andrea. Well, Pat and Jeff, several organizations, including the ACLU, helped organize tonight's town hall meeting and invited Jackie Lacey to attend. But it got very heated, so much so, Jackie Lacey walked out early. Charges now! Shut it down! 
Even before the meeting started, Black Lives Matter supporters took over as LA County District Attorney Jackie Lacey stood back. Because after they finish with us on the outside, they coming to get you on the inside, sister. Lisa Simpson says she wanted to confront Lacey after her 18-year-old son was killed by LAPD officers in July. And she got the power to stop it, but she won't. And I want to know why. I'll never get to see my son again. But when Lacey took the mic, she was often interrupted. More than an hour into the event, it was clear Lacey had enough and walked out early. We caught up with her minutes later. In some sense, it was hijacked a bit uh, because we had questions to cover, and and they were tough questions. Had you know, had I been allowed to answer them. So Lacey did talk with Simpson in the meeting and promised to meet with the grieving mother. I'm giving you an opportunity. But she says she also wanted to tell the public she must follow the law when deciding to prosecute officers. If an officer um, actually and reasonably believes that they are in fear for their life, even though they may be mistaken about what they saw, then they are entitled to defend themselves. And that's what the law is. But this one, and all of us who do civil rights law, we're looking at this case because not only did the officer shoot and kill this young man, and he was unarmed, there was video that was absolutely contradicted what he said. His own partner contradicted what he said. The police commission voted and said it was outside of protocol of how he did it. And here's the kicker. The chief of police, Charlie Beck, chief of police of LA, uh, LAPD, Stated he should be prosecuted. That's never happened. Wow. The chief no, of police said, Beck, certainly. you know, he said he should be prosecuted, and Jackie Lacey didn't have the guts to do it. And that really has, I have spent the last that 10 burns days. Me. I am, if I'm going to find somebody to run against this woman because we need, we need a criminal defense attorney, a civil rights attorney to get in there like they've done in Philadelphia. You know, Philadelphia elected a defense attorney as their prosecutor, and he is turning the criminal justice system there upside down. Mm. He's getting people, he's getting them treatment. He's getting people who are drug addicts. He's getting them into treatment programs. He's doing what a DA should be doing. We need to find somebody out here to do that. I am furious about that. I'm 10 days later and I'm still furious about it. No, that is something we should all be furious about. I actually had not heard of this. Although, you know, let's be honest, uh, Black Lives Matter has actually called the LAPD the most murderous police department in the country. And it seems to me that we get very little attention, even though that's the case. You know, the, you have situations in other parts of the country, like Ferguson, for example, and, and mad protests break out. But this is a daily has been a daily occurrence here in L.A. under Charlie Beck. And I don't understand why more people aren't angry about it. We clearly have a problem. And, um, you know, I think about the girl that was convicted of felony lynching in Pasadena, uh, Jasmine Richards. I, I don't yes. know if you're familiar with. I am. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's insane. Yes. What are we doing uh, here? Uh, it's the entire system needs reforming, and it needs to start at the top, and it needs to start with yeah. the DA in LA County. And we've we have got to. You're you're 100 right. We have got to quit ignoring this because this is important. It's extremely important. Yeah. We've got to go out and and make these people accountable. You know, I'm not somebody yeah. who says every police shooting of an unarmed man is automatically. Um, you know, it's wrong because there are circumstances where somebody could, under the heat of the moment, right. could mistake something or whatever. There are circumstances. Sure. But sure. what you find is every single time they find that, oh, well, the circumstances are uh, that the person, the, the police officer could have thought that. And it's just not true. Oftentimes they're right. running away. They're shot in the back. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, it's exactly. just, uh, it, it's my Exactly. Mind. No, it's, it's. You know, and I agree with you. It's clearly there's a difference between a, a legitimate shooting and something that's outright murder. And the and the police that commit outright murder need to be prosecuted as such. They shouldn't right. be exempt simply because they have a badge. You know, and this also is what sort of takes away trust of our police is this very thing because now it becomes well, gosh, you know, if it happened to that guy, it could happen to me. It, you know, the fear sort of takes hold of the population. We need to get back to more um, community policing too, I believe. I'm a, I, I totally agree with that, and I tell you, I actually spoke to a woman uh, last night, an African-American woman. I was talking to her at an event, and she said to me, I, she, came up, she said, I appreciate your Medicare for all. I do appreciate you support that. She said, but, you know, when you're living like where my, I'm worried about my son coming home 
every night mm-hmm. because of what's going yeah. on the streets with the police. She said, it's hard for us to think of much else. I said, yeah, mm-hmm. I, can, I can totally understand that. No, and that's a fair, that's a fair belief. Um, it's warranted. So another aspect of this situation, I think, is the private prison uh, system. We have yeah. private prisons now, and I think, um, I think they've really contributed to incentivizing longer sentences, incentivizing more folks going to jail. Um, and I think that there's some quid pro quo that goes on between the politicians and the private prisons. Um, do you think that that's the case? Oh, absolutely. They've got to fill their beds. Uh, it's yeah. in the very name that we're talking about, for profit. They've got to make a profit, and if the beds aren't full, if people aren't staying their entire sentences, if if they're not bringing in uh, additional uh, prisoners, they're not making a profit. Uh, I, I don't right. think there's any question that that goes on. I don't think there's any question that they're making huge donations to politicians to um, make sure that the, well, they they made huge donations to Donald Trump. And what mm-hmm. we saw is, is we actually saw Obama basically state that the federal government would no longer uh, use for-profit prisons. And so we, we were going away from that the last two years of his administration. And now Donald right. Trump came in, got a huge amount of money from the prison industry. And sure enough, we're back to um, using for-profit prisons. And I, I just to give you one example that I've seen personally. I was in a, yeah. a prison in uh, Tennessee a for-profit prison, and I was talking to one of my clients, and they brought the food around, and they gave him this – I can't even describe it. It, it. it sort of halfway looked like a cheese sandwich, but it was nothing you would actually really call oh, no. a cheese sandwich, and they gave it to him for lunch, and I said, this is your lunch? He wow. said, here, because they're trying to make a profit, they cut corners on everything, everything, blankets, wow. beds, everything, and – Essentially, they cut it so that the food itself is almost inedible, but hey, they're making more of a profit, so there you go. It's immoral. I mean, and I understand some people might turn out and say, well, they're murderers or whatever, but that's not necessarily the case, and they're still human beings at the end of the day entitled to a certain level of dignity, in my opinion. You know, and, and it's not just the Republicans. We had Jeff Berman that was appointed to the uh, Unity and Reform Commission by Hillary Clinton, and he is a lobbyist for Geo Prison Group. Why is this guy on our Unity and Reform Commission? Are you kidding me? So, I mean, I feel like um, it is unbelievable. You know, it's like I get angry at the Republicans, but then I get even more irate with my team because my team is starting to engage in some of the same nefarious practices, and we're supposed to just ignore it. Well, no, it's not going to work that way, folks. I'm just saying, we got to stand up to this. Uh, so, you know, we, in the last few weeks, we've had this Me Too movement that has uh, taken off, which has been great. I'm glad to see that some of this stuff is finally um, having a, a turning the corner as far as attitude with the public. But I think there's a little known thing that goes on with uh, rape kits. Um, a lot of yeah. times you'll have police departments take rape kits, and there's no funding to process the rape kits. They just sit there. How do we fix that situation? We've got to, well, First and foremost, we've got to do exactly what you're doing now. We've got to bring it to people's attention. People do right. not understand that what, a, what happens when a woman is sexually assaulted. They go into the police station oftentimes, and when they do, they are then tested, and it's invasive. Uh, it's, you know, yeah. after you've already been sexually assaulted, it's, it's not exactly a pleasant experience to go in and have to sort of be poked around and, and to get the mm-hmm. DNA and to do the different things yeah. that have to be done. And so we put together what are known as rape kits, and that includes your DNA, the, hopefully the DNA of the offender. Uh, it includes, like I said, some invasive procedures. So you you got the right. rape kit. Now you take it back to the evidence room. In this case, in general, it's most of the time they're they're done under refrigeration. They take them back there, and in this country, in so many locations, they sit. They absolutely sit there. Yeah. Sometimes they're never tested ever. Sometimes they're tested after six months, a year. So what you've got is you've got the very strong potential that a sexual uh, assailant is out there, not just assaulting this woman, but but potentially other women, when it would be very, very simple to find out, get their DNA. Hopefully they're in the bank, and you you could arrest them, take them off the streets, those kind of things. It's a matter of funding is why it's claimed that these are not being done, but yet we're able to fund, most police departments fund 
things like buying tanks, buying all yeah. kinds of assault right. weapons, Correct. things like yeah. that they can afford, but they can't afford yeah. to fund rape kits. That's ridiculous. It's clearly a priority choice that they're yep. making. And, you know, you bring up the military equipment that our police department are purchasing. And this is part of the thing you brought up earlier about our defense budget. This is all intertwined in this uh, military-industrial complex. This, this is all about profiteering between the corporations and our uh, public policy officials, where where they're, they're feeding this stuff because people are getting rich off of it. And nobody's going to get rich off of processing a rape kit or, or refunding or refinancing our UC system, for example. That's right. So these are choices that have been made. And I, I want to say it was Eisenhower that warned us of this, you know, years ago, that the military-industrial complex would eventually end up being our government. And I feel like we're sort of at that place right now. Um, you know, you brought up the defense budget earlier, speaking of, and it is astronomically high. I don't know if many Americans understand how much more we spend, like, 40 times more than the next country beneath us. It's, it's absolutely crazy. And all of this money is, is not only going into to wars, but it's going into uh, nation building abroad and, and a whole host of other things. Meanwhile, back here in the United States, we've defunded our uh, public university system. For example, the UC system here in California is now down to around 8% of the budget coming from the state. And this is, a, this is supposed to be a public university. We have crumbling infrastructure. Um, we have rape kits sitting there. So what, why is it that we can't seem to fix this thing? Um, so as a senator, what do you think that you could possibly do to, to help change the mindset that we have to spend this money on defense? I think, first of all, you touched on something a, a few minutes ago, and that is it's not just Republicans. Uh, we have yeah. had a series of Democrats who have been some of the hawkish, uh, including the current senator from California, Diane Feinstein, who have been the most hawkish right. pro-Defense um, Department senators in the Senate. Uh, mm -hmm. We have to make sure that our own party gets on board with this first. And I think people appreciate, people, even conservatives, appreciate waste. You know, they talk about government waste. And one of the yeah. things that goes on is we are not we are not allowing the Defense Department to be audited. They cannot be audited except by themselves. That's right. That's a great this point. This is a bipartisan issue. A number of Republicans have signed on to a bill by Barbara Lee, Congressman Congresswoman Barbara Lee from Oakland, has introduced a bill that we be allowed to actually just audit the Defense Department, and find out about the waste. This is, as I said, it's a bipartisan issue, and yet we have a number of Democrats who will not sign on who won't go for it. What we did find out, which is somewhat remarkable because of a whistleblower, is when the Defense Department did do an audit of themselves, and they buried it, fortunately a whistleblower sent it to the New York Times, and we found out mm. that over the course of five years, five years, they had wasted $150 Billion, oh my God! Billion with a B in administrative costs. We're not talking weapons. Wow. We're not talking wars. In administrative costs by their own audit. So you're talking 25 billion dollars a year. Which, if you know, you talked about wow. some of the things we could be doing: education, yeah. uh, environment, clearly medical, scientific technology, those kind of things. I think in order to get this to get this pushed to the public and to get it passed. I think this is what we've got to do. We've got to show people the waste and show them the audit and be able to go to the public and say, look, we can cut $125 billion here, and it won't affect our defense one bit, period. Yeah, no, and I think that's an interesting point. Uh, the audit is a big part of that, and I don't think most Americans realize that this is the case. You know, this is, this is part of the self-regulation that happens with regulatory capture. They, they sort of, they, they insulate themselves from having any issues as far as the government's concerned. It's crazy. Yes. So um, in your book, Mistrial, you discuss the flaws of the U.S. justice system. And one of the things, the underlying notions is this tough on crime mentality that sort of overtook the country in the 90s. And I think back to the TV show, uh, The West Wing, that Aaron Sorkin wrote. And one of the things that you will notice from that period of time, even though this was a Democrat in office, was that we can't be soft on crime. We can't be perceived as soft on crime. And I think, right? And I think this is very much, very much the case. And that was uh, sort of the nature of the time. And it's it's not changed since then. 
But my question for you is, what, can you pinpoint where that became the thing for both parties, that you could not be perceived by the public as soft on crime? I two two points. First point was in the late 1960s under Richard Nixon, who basically ran a campaign that was a very racist campaign directed toward the South, um, that essentially um, there were a lot of young African-American men who were running around the country uh, committing crimes, and that we need to be tough on crime, and we needed okay. tougher judges, we needed tougher legislation. And you saw that he was successful getting elected. He was actually successful as turning the South um, Republican for the first time. So that mm. was the first turning point. But the second, the second one that sort of was the kind of pushed it over the edge was um, Willie Horton and the Willie Horton ad, mm. um, yeah. which was given a lot of credit for George, the first George Bush beating Michael Dukakis. Bush and Dukakis on crime. Bush supports the death penalty for first-degree murderers. Dukakis not only opposes the death penalty, he allowed first-degree murderers to have weekend passes from prison. One was Willie Horton, who murdered a boy in a robbery, stabbing him 19 times. Despite a life sentence, Horton received 10 weekend passes from prison. Horton fled, kidnapped a young couple, stabbing the man and repeatedly raping his girlfriend. Weekend prison passes. Dukakis on crime. And there you saw an ad that was obviously a very racially tinged ad yeah. directed at uh, you know trying to, to scare people. And what you saw in that ad was the essence of the tough on crime. Here was Dukakis, uh, the weak, the weak Democrat, allowing uh, a vicious black man out on the streets. Although interestingly enough, it was a Republican program that he used to to um, to allow him to be pardoned for a brief period, but it was a, it really took the issue to the next level, and with the success of that, other politicians saw this is a great issue. This is an important issue right now. It's resonating, and then you started seeing everybody, every politician. Mm -hmm. I talk about in the book. I, I kind of make a joke about it, but it was sort of true. Right. Every politician had to have the commercial where. They had the kids running around the yard and the barbecue and the nice green lawn yeah. and, and everybody's just it's it's you know a Norman Rockwell painting and then all of a sudden it gets om ominous and the music gets and the clouds come in and it gets dark and and then you hear the politicians say that weak judges and liberal judges are letting criminals out on the street and our kids aren't safe and then you see them standing in front of a jail cell and they they slam the jail cell door really right. loud and it clangs right. and they say if you elect me. You know, I'll make sure that criminals are locked up. And I joked about it in the book, you know, people running for tax collectors started using it. I mean, it, <laughs> I'm going to be tough on crime because <laughs> it worked and everybody was using it. So then, th then you the add in the fact. Yes, exactly. Board of equalization. <laughs> Perfect. Um, and then to top that off, this is kind of the, the icing, the cherry on the top. Uh, O.J. Simpson gets charged. And, you know, right. they always talk about soft judges in the system and murderers going free. Well, of course, what happens is a African-American man commits murder and goes free, which then just plays into the entire narrative of, see, we told you so. Um, yeah. It's just been. What a mess. So, yeah. So it's been very. And now it seems like it's so permanently ingrained in the system. And it was just a snowball effect from there because yes. then you, you, now you've added the private prison system. You've added all of these things on top of that. Ugh, yes. We have to fix Absolutely. all of this. Um, I think the other thing you discuss in the book, which is a really salient point, And I agree with this hundred percent is we should not be electing judges. Yes. You know, there's there's something to admit to the fact that your general population, your general consistency may not have the right amount of knowledge to understand uh, or, or evaluate a, a judicial candidate. And I agree with this idea. Why is it that we do elect our judges? Is there a way for us to change that? There is a way to change it. We need basically several states don't do it. Several states, it's all the judges are appointed. So it can be done. It should be done. Uh, your point is very well taken. I will tell you that as a person who is in the system, who has been in the system for 25 years and who has been in courts all up and down Los Angeles and practically every courthouse, um, I can tell you when I go into the voting booth, there's usually, I don't know, anywhere from 10 to 15 
um, judges, different positions, right. and different candidates. I can tell you, I probably know a third of them, and yeah. I'm in the system. Yeah. Okay, right. I can't tell you two thirds of who these people are. So it's if I'm sitting there on in the system and I can't tell you two thirds of them, how in the world are people expected to make a choice? That's that's it's impossible. Absurd. Yeah, it, it is really absurd, is. and you can't. Even if you tried to, and I tried this one time, even if you tried to look up who these folks are and get some sort of reading yes. on, on what their positions are, it's near impossible. It's near I impossible. usually end up calling an attorney friend of mine saying, hey, help me out here. Who are these people? And I get a response similar what, to what you just said to me. I have no idea, Tina, and I can't even begin to give you a recommendation. <laughs> That's really true. It's really true. All you got to do to get elected as a judge is put your name down and then put gang prosecutor or uh, sex crimes prosecutor next to it, and you'll get elected. I mean, that, that's how judges get elected, because people don't right. know. And they don't know who to vote for. They don't know. And, you know, it's like, and I want to know where you stand on invasion of privacy issues. I mean, there's a whole bunch uh, of things that are so much deeper than that that are so important to this job. And you end up with these judges like this guy up at Stanford that lets this kid off for rape. I, it's, 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 it's well, you know, that situation is really interesting, because... Here you have a judge who, and I think this, this plays very much the importance of diversity on the bench. Here you mm -hmm. have a very, um, from his background, a very privileged white um, judge. He grew up in a fairly wealthy family. He'd always gone, you know, he went to best law schools and went to the best law firms. And, and here he, he saw another white male privileged kid. And right. in, in that kid, he sort of saw himself, I think. In a way, and he thought, boy, you know, there for the grace of God, I could have gotten drunk one night and and done something like that. So he makes a decision to be extremely lenient, and what was mm -hmm. a ridiculous sentence gave him you know, <laughs> essentially yeah. pretty much probation. Um, right. And you think, what if that if that person in front of him had been a young black male, who he who's totally different background than what he had. That person, I guarantee you, he would have sentenced to a number of years in jail. It would not have been a lenient sentence. And that's why it's so important to have diversity on the bench, to have mm -hmm. diversity as prosecutors. People who have, who can identify with defendants and their backgrounds and understand why it is that somebody might join a gang or why it is that somebody might commit a crime or do certain things. Right. It's, it's, it's extremely important, and I encourage people. I, I, my friends, I tell them, look, when I when somebody asks me about a judge, I always tell them I can't I can't even yeah. begin to tell you a lot of them. But I do think that you need to look at the diversity issue. That's something that is important in making it because I do believe we need judges who understand a number of point of views. No, and I think that's a that's a fair thing. Um, but I'm, I'm glad to hear that there are other states that are not doing this, so there is hope for yes. California to make a change in this direction. And you're right, because every time you go to the ballot box, it's not one or two. They're asking you to vote on 10 or 15, and you're like, mm, I, I don't even know what I'm doing here. Yep. <laughs> it's crazy. Um, it's crazy. Yeah. And so another big issue for progressives in the state is, is talking about capital punishment. And, you mm -hmm. know, I can understand on, on a basic level, you have, I think you have two levels here. The first level is like, well, should somebody like Charles Manson be exempt from capital punishment because he's an awful, horrible person? There's that level. But I think, I think the bigger picture issue, especially if you're an attorney, is the theoretical one. The idea is, does the state have the right to take away somebody's life? That's the first part. And the second part is, how do we know that this person is guilty when we know for a fact there are people that have been exonerated for DNA that are still sitting there in jail or possibly have been executed and the DNA is being uh, tested after the fact? There's so many things that can go wrong here. What is your opinion on that? I think that the thing that was very, very misunderstood and the public still doesn't really quite understand, I think when Californians voted for the death penalty and then voted mm -hmm. to continue to have the death penalty – what they envision is Charles Manson. They envision right. somebody who has um, the Hillside Strangler or, or people who've committed a number of murders, and it's clear and obvious they're guilty. There, there can't even be a, a question about it. I mean, it's, right. it's somebody who's committed a series of horrendous murders and who's clearly guilty. I think that's what people envision when they think of the death penalty. That is not how it's being put into practice, though. It's exactly. being put into practice against 
a uh, somebody who's a I don't know a jealous husband who comes home and and thinks his wife is cheating or something and goes mm-hmm. berserk and grabs a gun and shoots her and is immediately remorseful that person should go and have to spend because of what they've done they should have to spend their life in jail because it is right. taking a life and you should have to pay for that or at least you know spend 30 or 40 or 50 years in jail whatever that person has to pay the price for that period but what we're seeing now is that person is now getting the death penalty which is yeah. not what Californians meant it to be it's not supposed to be somebody who does something in the spur of the moment uh, a makes a horrible decision those people there is a penalty for them and it's called LWAP life without parole that's right the problem we have is you see so many prosecutors who again they want to show how tough they are they're given mm-hmm. the death penalty for cases like that and it's you know it's ridiculous it's absolutely ridiculous yeah it that's what I'm saying so even if even if and I think you're right I think that's exactly right they envisioned Charles Charlie Manson and what we've ended up with is this other thing that I am so theoretically opposed to just to give you my opinion on the matter I don't I don't think we should grant the state this option because they're going they're going to abuse it. I agree. Absolutely. So, yeah. So I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, your career because you've done some fascinating work as a criminal defense attorney. One of the folks that you defended, well, it's true. I mean, okay, so let's talk about Susan McDougall for a second. She was very much caught up, you know, we're flashing back to the Clinton years. She was very much caught, caught up in the Whitewater prosecution, but it seems to me that she wasn't really guilty of anything, and Ken Starr was uh, really going hard after her. But why is it that she chose to remain silent, and what was that, um, what was that like for you as, as a defense attorney handling the situation? Well, I need to, to take it one step further. I, I think um, okay. most people know this, that they've read the book. I wrote a book called The Woman Who Wouldn't Talk, which is about Susan, and uh, which actually um, I'm very proud of because it spent four four weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. Um, but I I tell people first thing you need to know is I had a dating relationship with Susan. I was uh, involved with her romantically. I did not know that. Okay. Yes, and that's how the whole thing started. That's actually how I ended up coming to California. Um, ah, we okay. were romantically involved. I was going to law school. We. I got out of law school. I went to work in the public defender's office in Nashville. Bill Clinton had been just elected president. The whole Whitewater thing blew up. They started talking about Susan as his business partner. And the next thing you know, we've got 35 television bands out in front of our house. Um, and it was just it was insanity. Um, so what happened with Susan was is Kenneth Starr came after her and essentially wanted her to Say something negative about the Clintons. Now, mm-hmm. what was interesting is Susan was no fan of the Clintons. She, right. especially Hillary, she was. Which is understandable. And, yeah, she Sorry. and Hillary were, were <laughs> oil and vinegar. I mean, she she would tell stories about, you know, they they tried to become friends or Bill and her husband Jim tried to make them friends. And she just, she just found Hillary to be very off-putting and mm-hmm. sort of. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> somewhat snobby I guess is the word and she just accurate. never warmed up to her but she yeah. so she as she told the uh, Kenneth Starr she said look if I knew something about them I'd tell you if I knew something they did I don't have any great love for them um, you know there's nothing about them that, that makes me want to cover up anything but they right. as far as I know I don't know anything they did wrong. Well, essentially, he went after her. He started prosecuting her. He started causing enormous problems in her life. Um, and eventually, he they sent a, a subpoena to the grand jury for her to testify. And before they did that, they they kind of told her and told her through her ex-husband that she needed to back up the story. Her ex-husband is now telling a story against the Clintons. And she said, I won't do it. Yeah. And they hinted very strongly that if she didn't do it, she was going to be charged for perjury. So she said, look, I'm just not going to cooperate with you people. I'm not going to, you know, right. I'm not going to deal with you. I'd rather go to jail. It's a better class of people than dealing with you guys. Yeah. Um, so she, <laughs> All around. <laughs> I, on the other hand, being the brilliant attorney, she said to me, we were talking about the options, and I said, oh, you'll probably, yeah, if you do this, you may have to stay in, stay in jail for a couple of weeks. Well, she was in for 18 months, so I, I missed that wow. by a little bit. <laughs> but she actually 
she's an incredible person, and she actually it strengthened her. She helped so many women in jail. She went on to um, work with organizations with women in jail. Uh, right. And, it, and now to now, I talk to her fairly frequently. We broke up, but I still talk to her. She looks back on that and says it was actually a very great experience for her. It was a great learning experience. And um, but you know, I, that, I admire. I admire for it. She just basically yeah. said, "I'm not going to lie." And if you're going to charge me, if I get on this up there and I tell them the truth, and you're going to charge me anyway, then just come after me. So, right, and it sort of seems to me that her husband was the one that was guilty of perjury. If that's yes, the case, that's exactly right. He, and, he, <laughs> it, it, there's an interesting story here, and, and I won't bore you with too much of the details. But when they they did end up charging Susan with uh, obstruction of justice and. and refusing to testify before a grand jury. So we went to trial in Little Rock, and what we found out was they had an indictment of Hillary Clinton drawn up. Hmm. Okay, the indictment was drawn up. It was sitting in a desk drawer based on her husband, her ex-husband's testimony, Susan's ex-husband. It was sitting there, and all they were doing was waiting for Susan to back it up. And if she'd have backed oh it up, my gosh. Hillary would have actually been indicted, and, and I tease Susan to this day. I said, "See, if you'd have just said something about Hillary, we would not have. Right. To, we wouldn't have Donald Trump right now. <laughs> it's her fault we have Wait, Donald Trump. It's her fault Bernie Sanders didn't win the primary. That's that right. The end of it. <laughs> now uh, we know. Now we know. We can blame Susan for it. <laughs> right. That's classic. Uh, so you had an interesting thing in your platform that I wanted to discuss as far as uh, refinancing our higher education system, which is something I agree with. I think we need to, to start giving money back to the UC and Cal State system. But the other thing that you talk about that doesn't get a lot of play out there is the idea that we also need to have tech jobs and training in tech jobs because not everybody's meant to go to UC and get a PhD. Okay. And these folks are still in need of training for jobs. So I... Uh, Explain to explain to the audience why that's important and some ways that we maybe can go about financing that system. Is it, for example, something that we add to our community college system, or how do we go about that? That's a great question, and I, I think it goes back to the very root of something Bernie Sanders says a lot, and I think he's correct on. It's not a question of jobs in this country. It's a question of good jobs. And yeah, what we're yeah. seeing is is we're seeing so many of the people who worked in the coal industry and fossil fuel industries who are, you know, we're offering them, we're saying, you know, get out of that industry and we'll get you a job. And what happens is the job that they, they go into is turns out to be something that's $9 an hour or $10 an hour. And these are people who are used to making $25, $30 an hour in the coal mines. And right. so, yeah, then they look and go, well, I'm going to go back to the coal mine because this isn't, isn't working. What we have to do is, is we have to provide good jobs, and those jobs are available through technology, through things like computer coding, things that, that mm -hmm. are coming, AI, things that are coming. But here's, my, here's what I think we have to do. I do think community college, we have to provide the, the free courses so that they can do it. But right. I do believe in terms of retraining, this country needs to provide for people who are going through the process. We need to provide a stipend for them to live off of while they're going through the training so that they can pay their bills and that they can they don't have to worry about uh, right. how, I, how I can actually do this. If you're going to go through a six-month training program on, let's say, um, on how to operate a uh, driverless car, uh, how that uh, you're going to be somebody who deals with, with actually making them work, if you're going to go through that training, then you need mm -hmm. to be given for six months a stipend to pay your bills so that when you get to the point where you've, you're trained, you aren't hugely in debt and you aren't sitting there worrying about bankruptcy or, or going That's through right. it. That is a very small price to pay for retraining our workers. I agree. And, you know, maybe part of that is refiguring the way we look at unemployment because one of the things about unemployment that really blows my mind is you can only collect unemployment if you're looking for a job actively is how they have it set up. So that means if you get laid off your job and you decide to go back to school, you aren't able to collect unemployment. And this makes absolutely no sense to me. If for those six minutes, if that, if giving somebody unemployment for six months would allow them to go through the retraining to be able to get a job, wouldn't that make sense? Makes total sense. Makes too much sense. That's the problem. <laughs> I mean, it just, it's, I, that always baffles me. 
Um, and I think another part of that is our trade agreements. And as Senator, you would have um, some say in that. I think we've gone to this place now where we, when we talk about free trade, it's just a nonsense thing because this is just yes. another handout to the corporate oligarchy. And yes. I think what we really need to start looking at is what I call fair trade. We need to take into consideration labor practices. Uh, environmental factors, et cetera. So in, is, do you think there's a way to renegotiate NAFTA, um, to relook at something other than the TPP as far as um, trade agreements? I absolutely think we need to renegotiate NAFTA. And I, I look at it from just from a practical standpoint that when NAFTA was passed in the 1990s, we, I think you could probably safely say 90% of Americans couldn't have told you what the Internet was, the World Wide Web. Um, they right. wouldn't have even known what we were talking about at that point when it was right. passed, or very few would. It was just becoming into into play. Everything's yeah. changed. Everything has changed. Our jobs have changed. Technology has changed things dramatically in the last 25 years since NAFTA was passed. The idea that we have a treaty that doesn't even address what is actually going on in the marketplace is ridiculous. Mm -hmm. I mean, it has got yeah. to be renegotiated. It's got to be renegotiated. It has got to be done. You hit the you hit the nail on the head. Fair trade. That's what we're looking yeah. for. No one's asking for handouts. We well, the corporations are. I shouldn't say that. They're no, asking right. for handouts. <laughs> right. But the we are asking to, are. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And they get them, unfortunately. And they get um, them. Yeah. But we're not asking. We're asking for fair trade, and I think it's got to be renegotiated. And I think we have to have a we have to have a system that appreciates the labor market in this country, and actually we, we have to go back to because this country was at its strongest when unions were at their strongest. That's when right. we had the strongest middle class in the history of the world. We have to go back to pushing unionization and making sure that there are these people are paid a fair wage because it's going to benefit all of us. That's right. You know, at the end of the day, if we don't do something about the income inequality, everyone's going to pay the price. And it really baffles me that the the one percent, so to speak, doesn't see this. At some point, you've, if you've destroyed the expendable income of the majority of consumers, there's nobody left right. to sell widgets to. <laughs> That's, <I just>, right. <laughs> That's exactly right. You know. But they don't seem to have the the bigger picture in their minds, and they're so greedy in the short term. I mean, short -term. Term. I mean, last year. Yeah, the last year uh, when the data came out, I think a little over 80% of the new wealth that was created went to the 1%. This is insane. This is an insane thing we're doing. It's all, you hit the nail on the head, it's all short-term thinking. Everything has gone yeah. to short-term thinking. Everything has gone to how can we absolutely get our um, our shareholders the quickest profits possible. Right. So I, I can then in turn get the, the bonus connected with that and buy the fifth yacht or the you know, and they end up hoarding the money because who needs five yes. yachts? That's right. That's exactly right. So it's crazy. It's insane. You know, and I think the other part of that that you can maybe speak to as a criminal defense attorney is the white collar crime that just doesn't get prosecuted. We see time and time again, not just the banksters in 2008, but your daily, um, everyday sort of average white collar crime doesn't get prosecuted. So why is it when we say we're tough on crime, we're tough on all crime except the kind that comes from rich guys? You know, that's a great – I'm glad you asked me. No one's asked me that question, and that's a great question. And it's something that mm. absolutely is infuriating because I, I deal with U.S. attorneys a lot of times mm -hmm. in government. And when you sit down with the U.S. attorney and you really talk to them about why is it, for example, that they didn't get prosecuted in 2008 or why is it that certain um, people we know have committed – uh, some pretty serious white-collar crimes, why don't they really get prosecuted? And the answer is, the honest answer, when they're being honest, is we don't really have the resources in the office because we know, for example, <laughs> that if we go after some white-collar guy who's got a bunch of money, he's going to go hire somebody that's a really top-notch defense attorney, and wow. they're going to drag it out for three years, and they're going to file 25 motions, and blah, 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 blah. And so the, the, the essence is it does matter how much money you have because yeah. the U.S. attorneys themselves will tell you if somebody's got the money to fight them, they don't want to prosecute them because they know it's going to, they know it's going to take up their time, their energy, and it's, it's going to be difficult for them. They'd rather just go after the low-hanging fruit, which is usually the, uh, just, uh, you know, the guy selling the, the, the baggies of weed. Yeah, yeah, they were back at the baggies of weed. But, you know, that's just mind-blowing to me. So they're basically yep. making an argument of, of resource. 
Yep. And that's an interesting point because I had not considered that. And, you know, I think about the situation with HSBC where they were, they, they were so clearly laundering money for gangsters and for, you know, drug cartels and the like. This was not up for debate. And this was, these were massive charges. These were not minor problems. Yet here we go with a fine that was what the equivalent of five to six weeks worth of profit for the firm. That was mm-hmm. the big yeah. punishment that they got. Nobody went to jail, and they yep. were literally changing the codes to evade the law in their system. They were doing this knowingly. It's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. And in, in fact, if you get yeah, a chance, it, there is a documentary that was nominated for Academy Award this year called uh, "Small Enough to Jail." Uh, mm. It is a documentary okay. on uh, the only bank, the only Wall Street firm or yeah. bank that was prosecuted oh in 2008, and it was a small bank in Koreatown that was right. prosecuted for some of the most ridiculously stupid things in the world. And it's because they could, they you know had they the resources to go after them, and they did, and they lost. They went to trial and lost. Um, wow. The government did. So it just shows you, though, that the, the mindset, and it is, it is just, well, it needs period. to change. Yeah. You know, and I think the other, the other aspect of that is the money bail system. We are literally punishing people for being poor. I mean, you right. have folks, I don't know that most Americans realize this, you have folks sitting in prison right now who have not been convicted of any crime. They have not That's even right. been to trial, and their only, their only guilt is not having money to post bail. That's right. What do we do about that? We need bail reform, and we need it immediately. They, I will give some, believe it or not, Senator Rand Paul of Kentucky uh, has. Every now and then he gets it right. I have to be fair. Yeah, he does, doesn't he? <laughs> ever, he lucks into it every once in a while. Uh, yeah. He has actually been a big proponent of, of reform, and he he is correct. He's introduced a bail reform act that would essentially force states to use what is the current federal system. And the federal system okay. allows for pretty much everybody to get out on some sort of a bail as long as they are not a danger to the community or an obvious flight risk, uh, which is exactly the way the system should be rather than whether or not they can afford the bail. That's that's an asinine sort of requirement. Yeah, it's asinine. Um, and it's, in fact, they've had situations, I think, where people have died under these circumstances while in oh, prison. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's... And, and and even so many of my clients who, for example, have lost their jobs because they were sitting in a jail yeah. cell, have lost their families because their families had to go and, and do other things, move elsewhere, lost their wives, lost their apartments or their homes. They lose everything because they can't they can't make a bail, and it turns out they're not even guilty of anything, but they have to sit there until they right. can prove it. Right, and then you end up with somebody that's been so battered by the system, they may very well become a criminal. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. That's right. Absolutely. It's insane. And so the big question for today, of course, is about gun violence. We had another school shooting this morning, and uh, I'm a little bit distraught that I feel as if this has become so commonplace that people are sort of turning a blind eye to it now and ignoring it and accepting it as some sort of weird, perverse new norm. Um, And, you know, I'm very upset that we have – you know, we have folks that will attack Bernie Sanders for having a D-minus rating from the NRA, and at the same time, they're giving a pass to the eight Democrats that have A ratings. So what is going on in, in the Democratic Party that we have, we have these folks that have A ratings and are clearly taking money from the NRA, but we're going to yell at the guy that has the D-minus rating simply because he wants reform and he's an independent? That's the first part um, I'm curious for your opinion on. And the second part is, is what can we do about gun violence? What kind of laws should we be looking at? Is it limiting, is it banning assault rifles? Is it limiting um, access to ammunition? Is it putting safety locks that require a fingerprint on the gun? There's all of these different ideas. What, what is your preference? Well, it goes back to what we talked about at the very beginning. Uh, there, there are a lot of measures that I think we can take that are, um, that are good measures. But they're piecemeal. Uh, we can eliminate, you know, assault weapons. We can talk about getting rid of bump stocks. We can talk about different, different ways of making it more difficult for people to purchase weapons. But it goes back to the very essence of what we talked about in the beginning. The NRA is powerful, one of the most powerful, yeah. if not the most powerful lobby in, in Washington because of corporate donations. 
because they're right. willing to basically raise enough money for many of the congressmen to get reelected, they raise for some congressmen anywhere from a hundred thousand to five hundred thousand yeah. dollars, which is a huge amount of money for somebody in terms of their reelection campaign, a congressman. Yeah. And if you're going to really want to solve gun issues, you got to cut them off at the knees. You got to cut off the NRA, and you got to do that by cutting off corporate donations and not allowing them to be able to by these congressmen. Once you do that, right. that's that's the head of the snake. You've got to cut it off, not allow them to be able to buy congressmen. Once you do that, you'll see common sense gun legislation go through mm-hmm. repeatedly because most people understand. Mm-hmm. I mean, these some of these congressmen frustrate the hell out of you because they're not – some of them are dumb. Some of them are, but some of them are dumb. And they know that what right. they're doing – they know exactly what they're doing, that they're doing the NRA's bidding, but they want to get reelected. Right. And they compromise in their own minds with, well, you know, I'll take this money and I'll vote for this, but, you know, it's important that I be here to vote for other things. And, and they start sort of making it in their own minds that they, it's okay to do this. Well, you take right. away the NRA, you take away the contributions, and you're going to see people start doing some very common sense things since the legislation was Yeah, done. that actually makes sense because they're no longer owned by the special interest, so they can actually yes. look at the legislation and make decisions, right. whatever those decisions may be. And they're, they know there may be more than one way to deal with the situation. But clearly, at True. this point, something needs to be done. We can't. We can't possibly continue on the path we're on right now. I mean, we it's can't. amazing to me. So if somebody Thank wants you. to donate to your campaign, where can they go? They can go to my website, Pat Harris for Senate, and that's spelled out F-O-R, um, not the not the number four, PatHarrisForSenate.com. You can go on there, click on the donate button. Uh, if somebody, you know, we we take all kinds of donations. If somebody wants to donate two million dollars, they can feel free. <laughs> uh, if somebody wants to donate ten dollars, that's great too. We're happy to take any donation. We're thrilled when people do uh, donate because it not only not only the fact that they put it went into their wallet and uh, and donated but also the fact it shows the support for us so we love that and we do right. appreciate it 